Welcome to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with Lee Jackson. Welcome to Get Good at Presenting, the podcast with myself, Lee Jackson. This week, my guest is Ricky Arundel. I've known Ricky for, uh, oh gosh, quite a few years now. We've had a few curries together. We've been around the PSA together and we've spoken. And uh, I think, uh, Ricky, you also spoke when I was doing the event as PSA president. So a lot of history. So Ricky is a speaker and also a presentation coach and a storytelling coach. Did I get that right, Ricky? That's pretty much right, yeah, Lee. Uh, actually, yeah, we go back to – I was trying to work that out this morning because um, it was when you were doing that event for Trevor Phillips. I changed gender <laughs> and sort of been to university in uh, 2005. So it, and it was after the Equality Act 2006, and that whole Fairer Britain campaign came up, and there was uh, mm. events all over the country, and you were at the York one. And this was in your previous role when you were really talking about religion and the way in which religion was now more encompassing of all all people which was mm. what impressed me because i have had a, a bit of a a bit of a history of battling with some people with a religious background who struggle right. with lgbt people <laughs> yeah well I, th- I think in those days um i was kind of a youth worker working for a sort of christian based charity yeah so so i was i was probably doing a chat about that but obviously being working in schools and being someone that was in a faith-led charity, we worked very much with everybody. So it was just sharing those stories of if you have a faith and you don't have to be weird, you know what I mean? So that was... <laughs> well, I think this is it, isn't it? And I think the more that religion has opened up and said, look, you know, if you're gay, well, you know, okay, that's that's fine. And it avoided the battle. We had a problem at the time because I was just out and my life had completely changed because when I came out, I was transgender. My business just literally fell off the cliff. Nobody would book me. Let me ask you that, Enrique. So obviously this is not a video podcast, but obviously people can find you. They can see you in action. You transitioned and everything changed, like you said, in your business. So you had a full kind of speaking career before your yeah, transition, was that absolutely. right? My career had started in financial services. I'd, uh, I'd worked for a company where I was in the training department and I got promoted to assistant manager training. And they, when the job came up for manager, they said, no, you can't have it. And I said, why? And they said, well, you haven't had any sales experience. I said, well, yeah, but I do all the training and, and yeah, I can still be, a tra- no, they said, you can't be a sales training manager unless you've actually done sales. Oh, I see. And I said, well, this is a bit, bit off, isn't it? And uh, anyway, <laughs> what happened was I, I'd got a company mortgage. This was back in the days when you know everybody was paying about you know 10% on their house mortgage. So I got a 4% mortgage, which meant I could go get myself. My first house was a detached house in Bedfordshire for £12,000. Can you believe that? £12,000 for a house. Wow. Uh, we're only talking 1976. It wasn't as if it was that long ago. In 1976, <laughs> you could buy a detached house for twelve grand. So I got the, got the house, and and everybody was prepared. Yeah, yeah. You want carpet? Yeah, pay us when you can. Uh, do you want a fridge? Yeah, you have a fridge. Yeah, have a car. Have a. Everybody just gave me all this stuff and said, "Pay me when you can." And then they said, "Okay, can you start paying now?" And I thought, "Oh, bugger!" All right. <laughs> and I I didn't have enough money to pay them, so I went and got myself a job taxi driving. I did late night taxi driving in Bedford for. A, I'd get I'd go take the Friday night train up from London where I was working into Bedford, jump in a taxi, work until eight o'clock in the morning, drive home in the taxi and then come back to do the eight till 12 on Saturday night. And uh, that that my money until, oh yeah, then on Valentine's Day, 
1976, I'm coming home, hit a slightly bad corner, slightly bleary-eyed, having done an eight-light shift, car started to skid, couldn't handle it, and uh, went backwards and sideways down an embankment and bent the roof of the car. Gosh. Didn't please the owner of the taxi much. <laughs> no, so that was the end of that. Yeah, and so that was it. I lost my job, so I thought, oh, what am I going to do? And I picked up a paper, and I'm walking, you know, going home, you know, in my car, and there's this advert for, you know, could you sell cookware? I thought, what? And it was in multi-level marketing. I'd never even heard of multi-level marketing. So I've, there's this job selling cookware, and the idea was you went into a people's home and you did a cookery demonstration in their kitchen to 14 people while they're asking questions about it produce the meal in you know about an hour serve it all up no selling on the on the night but make sure everyone's had a good time and then book appointments to go back and sell it well I've always been a speaker by then I was you know doing training so I was quite good speaking so the whole idea of actually a whole job where I just went and did cookery demonstrations speaking in people's kitchens really appealed to me and a couple of weeks after I'd started doing this, the people who recruited me said, oh, look, we've decided they're going to open a restaurant in Cornwall. Do you want our parties? And I said, yeah. Well, I had some really, really good friends that they connected these parties up with. It wasn't wow. cheap cookware. And before I knew what was happening, I was turning in more money selling cookware in the evenings than I was for my full-time job as the sort of assistant <laughs> manager in training. And building. Like, are you telling me that multi-level marketing actually works? Because I don't believe that, Ricky. Well, for a short period of time, it worked. It was all part of Tupperware. It's called Miracle Made, and I was moving a huge amount of product. It was an expensive product then as well. It was about, the whole kit was like two hundred and nine pounds in nineteen seventy six, which was you know a you lot. Could of buy money. a house for that. <laughs> Get close. Get close. So anyway, that was it, and I did so well on this, and I was, and I was thinking about dumping my full-time job and going full-time with this because it was so good. And then all of a sudden, the uh, regional manager in the, our Brighton office at the company I worked from contacted me and he said, I hear you've been getting some good, doing some good in sales. I said, well, it's not been going bad. He said, how would you like to come down and be my manager in Brighton? Okay. So, this is exactly what I need in order to become a sales training manager. This was what I needed. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So hopped off down to Brighton, spent three months living in a hotel, some of the time living in a caravan. Um, my son, second son came along at the same time, so it was all a bit hectic. But I had a really great three years down in Brighton. The company dis- decided they were not going to have a sales training manager. They merged the thing up, so the job I'd wanted disappeared anyway. And I found another job, sales training manager, for another unit link company and got it. At uh, 28, I was exactly where I wanted to be. I was sales training manager for a big company. And that was it. But it's all down to the fact that I got myself involved in multi-level marketing. I still got some of the cookware. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great period of time. I absolutely loved that. I would, And I've done lots of exhibition work and stuff since then. And I, yeah. I don't know whether you've ever done it, but it's actually quite a lot of fun doing speaking in these very weird environments like people's homes in caravans, all sorts of things. Or Yeah. I think the strangest gig I've ever did there's a couple of gigs that I have this strange. One was I spoke in a blind home oh, right. or blind residence. They just rang me up. It was just when I just started. And I just think, you know, the more the diverse groups you can speak to, the better you good for your experience, right? So I said, yeah, absolutely. So I went, uh, but I made the mistake. I was writing a book on PowerPoint at the time. And I said to him, do you mind if I use slides? 
and I didn't I didn't realize for a moment what that meant. And then and then of course, and the woman on the phone, she said, Well, you can love, but we'll not see them. So, <laughs> so I think that was my first time when I actually pulled away from using slides and actually just went and they were absolutely lovely and I had a great time and I think they fed me well, uh, paid me about 20 quid or something. And then, but you know what? It's a great experience. And so, and the other weird one I had, I was booked for a, doing a motivational talk at a networking event in Leeds, this was just near the station. And it turns out they ended up being in this pub. Now, when they said a pub, I was presuming a quite a posh room on the side of the pub. Yes. But no, it was an outside balcony. Oh, God. In a pub just by Leeds station. And I remember putting my laptop on a beer barrel. You know, it was such, and nobody was interested in what I was saying. You know, they were just there to have a good time. So, yeah, I quite I think it's good to have those experiences. And the strangest event I did was something I did for whole city council. And they said, would I do something as part of a sort of whole, whole is William Wilberforce. So it's all about, you know, end of slavery and all that stuff. Yeah. So it was connected with that, but they wanted something on trans issues. It was a friend of mine who I'd been at university with who booked me to do it. And I said, where is the, where are we actually doing this? Jeremy, she said, it's actually in Princess Keys. Princess Keys is one of the main shopping centres. Yeah. And it's this three stories with a huge big atrium in the middle. And I was on a stage at the ground floor and there were people standing on the balconies up three floors looking down at me speaking about transgender awareness in a... Uh. And this strange echoey as, as your voice sort of goes circling up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, atriums are crazy, aren't they? They've um, There's a school that I know that has an atrium. So when I, I don't do as many schools as I used to, but the school, they what a bad idea. Imagine building a school around an atrium. So the, so as soon as the bell goes, whatever, you get all the kids come out of the classrooms. They're all chucking things over the top and shouting across to their mates. And I'm in the middle trying to do an assembly. <laughs> I just, you just, I remember just waiting, just thinking, if I just wait three minutes, they'll just disappear back into classrooms. And it all went quiet again. And then I just carried on. Yeah, well, a shopping centre, when you haven't got people's attention, that must be hard gig, that. What I found was, see, I did a, right back in the early days, I used to go to the London PSA meeting and uh, they decided one year that they were going to hold the PSA regional meeting or chapter meeting at Speaker's Corner. Okay, yeah, in the park, yeah. In the park. So they had a special, you know, soapbox made with PSA and everything on it. You had to sign up for it. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. So I decided I would do it on gender and I'd be very provocative. You know, the sex wars are over, women won. Sorry, guys. (laughs) It was that kind of uh, thing. And because I knew that the only way to get anything to work when you're doing speaker's corners, you have to have hecklers. Without hecklers, you're just dull and boring. You really okay. say, so you've got to be a bit provocative. And, and I got it. And all of a sudden, I think what happened, I got up and started to speak. There was only about sort of 20 people standing around. I thought, this isn't going to be very good. It's like the word must have suddenly shot out. Yeah, there's a tranny over there. <laughs> next thing oh, I knew, gosh. they're all piling around. I had about 200 people listening and people starting to heckle me about, you know, uh, I, I can't remember even how it went now. I was in such good form. People were saying things. And uh, yeah, I remember somebody said, well, why would you want to be a woman? I said, sir, if you were an example of manhood, do I need to answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
It was, I, you know how you get on form sometimes, don't you? You just, you know, <laughs> you just, everything that comes at you, you just bat it away and it was... You're definitely on a roll. I always I always think my wife, Claire, always worries if she's hearing me speak, which she does occasionally. I think she said to me once, if I see you starting to lean on the podium, I know I'm in trouble. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> I've just settled in. I'm leaning on the mic stand or the podium. Yeah, we're going to be here for a while. I've got, I've got this lot, you know what I mean? So that always made me laugh. So, uh, gosh, we could talk about this stuff all day, but we, this is get good at presenting. So we need to give some top tips, Ricky. So, well, I'll tell you one thing that I, I mean, I, obviously, as you know, I was the sort of founder of the PSA and got everybody together. That I say the founder, it, it was um, the, the PSA. By the way, uh, listeners, if you don't know, is the Professional Speaking Association in the UK and Ireland. Just so you know, yep. So I'd been in Toastmasters, which is the club that everybody joins in order to try and learn how to speak, and it just didn't go any further. You could get speech competitions, but there was nowhere to help. And what I noticed was most of the big conferences and conventions in the insurance industry, sales industry, because those were the big sort of national conferences, they're constantly bringing in speakers from America. There were speakers from Australia, or they were celebrities, sports personalities who, who couldn't really speak. They just told anecdotal, funny stories about you know their lives. And it really irritated me that as somebody who'd learned speaking and developed the craft and spent years, we just weren't getting out there. Bureaus wouldn't book us and, and we couldn't. Yeah. So I thought we needed something. And somebody pointed me to the NSA in America, the National Speakers Association, went off to one of their conferences. And that was absolutely amazing. Utterly blew me away. Two and a half thousand speakers all in one big conference <laughs> a pretty loud conference right it was a pretty loud conference yeah no not funny many people were listening at all but it- i went to nsa conference about five years ago when i was president and i think it was about 1500 then it dropped quite significantly yeah, yeah. but two and a half thousand to three thousand when it was at its peak was that was quite an event right that was oh, quite was. an event i just absolutely blew me away it was one of those life-changing experiences don't oh. happen very much you sort of I went there as you know, as someone who was a public speaker. I came back a professional speaker. So I suddenly thought, this is it. This is my life. This is where I want to go. I was doing quite a few bits, and I was beginning to get to – the reason that I did it was but I'd had a lot of experience with associations. My friend Brendan Power, who helped, was the first person to sort of join me in trying to get it together, had also had a lot of experience. Philip Campani, who I got involved in, he'd been in Toastmasters, a lot of experience in that. So, so yeah. we just – I just was grabbing people who had the right kind of experience and the right commitment. You know how much time it takes to run and get involved. If if you book up to you know go on the board of the PSA, it's a quite big time commitment. Yeah, it's just and it and it, it involves lots of things that people don't don't know. Absolutely. There's a lot, a lot of background and a lot of secret stuff. Not secret, yeah. but confidential stuff that's going on in the background. Oh. And there's, there's oh, yeah, there's always something. Something, something yeah. kicks off and think, oh, yeah, how do we yeah. deal with this? Yeah. To, but um, and I do remember that I uh, around about this time I was doing quite a lot of I become very much involved as a technology speaker and I spoke okay. for the whole nineties. My experience was all within technology, and uh, I'd got booked to speak on a cruise ship, and Frank Furness, also a friend, I think you've even mentioned yeah, him. Frank was also speaking on this cruise. Well, I was just having a chat with this before I changed gender, just having a chat with some guys, and suddenly it was. They introduced me, and I said, okay, cool, just got to go. Um, so I went up, did my speech, came back, and the guy I'd been speaking to said, what happened there? I said, what do you mean? He said, it was as if you walked through this weird portal and somebody else 
came out the other side as you went on the stage. This is what happens, that we have a persona that once we go on stage, you have to fill the room, don't you? If you're going to do a big speech, this was, you know, 500 people, mostly having had a few drinks. But, you know, you've got a, a room full of financial advisors and you can't just get up on stage and quietly talk about your topic. You've got to absolutely fill the room. Yeah, you could uh, grab power them. and energy and lots of humor. I, even though I was talking about, you know, why you should build a website and why websites are important. This was 1990. Nobody had one then. <laughs> <laughs> I think I realized at that point when somebody said that, I thought, yeah, this is what happens. I've, I've sort of anchored a fe- set of feelings that go with me filling the room and being an entertainer mm. as you go on stage. And I, and I think this is one that... One of the one of the friends I meet, met at a National Speaker Association, Wayne Pickering, uh, the mango man from Daytona Beach, Florida. Right. right. He's nearly 80 now and he looks like he's about 50. He is incredibly fit. He's still got a six pack. <laughs> right. Ex Marine. And but you know, he's really into into good food. He loves all these little expressions. The more you fry, the sooner you die. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and another thing about speakers, have have some nice little one-liners that people can remember. But I said to him once, I said, Wayne, if yeah, I said, if you think back to when you started speaking, what do you know now that you wish you'd known back when you started? So that's easy. Uh, okay. I said that's easy. This is show business. Yeah. If you are speaking for pay, if you're speaking for a living, if you're doing it as a speaker, you have to entertain. Whether that's online and the way we're doing it now, or whether it's in person to person, if you want to make a difference, okay. it has to be entertaining. So let me just drill down on that one a little bit. Yeah, go so, for it. so it is entertainment as as well. So yeah, we've talked a lot about the BBC thing, the idea that you you know you educate, inform, and entertain those three things that are on the they're the tenants of the BBC basically, yeah. which I think are really helpful yeah, yeah, in, our, yeah. in our context, you know. So what if someone here is listening to this podcast and they're just a person in business and they're thinking, actually, you know, I, I tend to do the sort of death by a PowerPoint thing a bit. I'm not an entertainer. How would you help them to, you know, to grab that audience, you know, when really they're just probably just go up there and they're a little bit just their normal self, you know. Stories. Just tell stories. Stories are the way to be entertaining. If you look at top comedians when they go on stage now there used to be a time when people like people will go up and just tell one line jokes well th- those days are gone and nobody wants to hear a stack of joke the jokes have to be embedded into stories as if they really happen i know a lot of them are just created <laughs> but right. you tell a story and you draw people into the story and do you know the moment i hear a businessman tell the story of how the business got created Everybody gets, everybody's on the edge of the street. Oh my God, how did that happen? What was going on? As long as it's not a timeline, no, Ricky, I'd hold you on that one because no. I get quite a few people coming to me and I coach them and they and they start off a, hello, you know, um, John Smith Plumbers. We started in 1993 and then in 1994, we had another plumber who came along. So how, how do you prevent that kind of... Yeah, that, that's not a story. <laughs> yeah, so, 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 so explain, let's go a little bit deeper on this one. Explain the difference between, you know, so, so say telling the history of a company, how do you make it a story rather than a boring timeline that everyone else would do? If you look at some of the stories, like, I mean, I don't know if you've read the story of Apple or, or seen the things or the story of Facebook, 
Now, those are stories that were turned into movies. The Facebook story is a really mm. exciting story. There's a real whiz kid figuring yeah. out how to play around. And, and essentially, you've got to understand, Facebook was set up as a means to allow the boys at college at MIT to figure out who were the hottest girls on campus and try and get dates. That was oh, the okay. sole purpose of Facebook. Right. It was a dating app, really, yeah. The dating app, exactly. That's exactly mm. what it did. But he started to see another another route to it. And then the battle came between the guys who were financing it and Zuckerberger, who was the genius behind the programming of it. And they end up in a big, huge law battle and Zuckerberger ends up paying millions because they were claiming it was their idea. But, you know, so, so there's, a, there's a story there, a story so good, it was turned into a movie. Now, that's exactly the same about... There's been two films, I think, about Steve Jobs. One about the origins, you know, two guys working in a garage trying to figure out what to do, understanding the theme, what was the passion behind it all. And you've got this great story that produces a company that reaches a peak and then they fire him and he, it collapses and and then he comes yeah. back and takes it back over again and, and invents the iPhone, which... <laughs> so when you're helping people and you're talking about storytelling, do you give people a guideline for kind of the length of a story, for instance? Oh, it's, it's hard, that one, isn't it, Lee? I was coached quite well by Doug Stevenson, who's like the story theatre coach in, in America. He has a story about streaking at college. It's a really quick story. You could tell it in two minutes. He manages to pad it out for 25. All right. <laughs> it turned him over half a million dollars, one story. And it's just a simple story about going somewhere and getting caught and streaking uh, for a bit of fun and actually getting arrested and by the police for streaking. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I can't even. Remember, I just remember the story, the streaking story. It's his keynote story. Yeah. And I think if you look at all the top speakers, they've all got keynote stories. And and I I grew up on Zig Ziglar and. Brian Tracy and people like that. And if you listen and go to any of their events all the time, they just pack it with stories. And I've been doing some coaching of PSA members recently. And, you know, looking at what's happening, I hear something come across and they give me all the technical details. I think, where's the story? What got you into this? What? Why yeah. did this happen? Then I find out that there was a skiing accident. And suddenly they're confined to the office for a few weeks. Yeah. And in that few weeks, they started to look at their business and think, what's going on? And suddenly everything changed. Hmm. I tell the story of the setting up the PSA. It was going to Minneapolis and going to the NSA convention. It just changed the direction of my life. My story about getting in, into speaking all started because I was sitting on the steps at college at the age of 18. I'd failed everything. I failed, well, I had one A-level. Didn't get to university. Wasn't going to become a nuclear engineer, which was the plan. Okay. Uh, I think everybody can be glad about that. <laughs> Chernobyl would have seen nothing <laughs> compared to what I could have done. And I'm sitting there with this friend of mine who happens to be named Alan Stevens, but it wasn't the same Alan Stevens. Friday was a period where we were free to do whatever we want. It's like Wednesday afternoon. What are you doing for your free period? I said, I don't know. I did typing the first year. Uh, he said, why don't you join the drama club? I said, oh, I don't know. I'm not really sure whether I'm into that. And at that time, a couple of girls walked past, and one of them I really fancied. So I said, all right, I'll audition. <laughs> she had a really big boyfriend, so that didn't go anywhere. By this time, 
I decided I was going to get the part of Mark Antony and Julius Caesar. Just little conversations, isn't it? You're sitting with somebody, you have a conversation, something happens, and before you know where you are, you're often running in a new direction, which changes the course of your life. Mm. And I try to get people to try and look back. Can you find that extraordinary, that little moment in time when where you thought you were going to go changed? It might have been a conversation. It might have been a failing to do something. It might have been something that went wrong. It might have been something that went really right. But something just knocked you off course down a new track. And if you just look at your timeline of your life and go up and think, okay, where where did this actually happen? How did I end up there? Ah, it was because I met this person here. It was because I... You know, broke my leg there and didn't go to something else or wasn't able to do something. I was so listening like, to a story about somebody the other day who's done hugely successful. He's paralyzed. The whole of his life changed. Now, so sometimes it's a big event. Sometimes it's just literally a, a quote, a book somebody referred you to, a, a podcast you've listened to. Yeah, it's just something yeah. that makes you go, whoa. Yeah, Why those kind of those kind of light bulb moments, or or the the moment when you maybe some people would switch 180 degrees. You know, they would move, and you know, we talked a little bit about faith and religion at the beginning. There, people yeah. would say that you know when when they had maybe you know a kind of road to Damascus, absolutely experience, and then their life is changed, and that's some of the key moments. And so, yeah, so that's a good example for people who are just in business, or maybe they would call themselves a public speaker. Is, is is how do you make that professional? Well, you find those moments and you work on those moments yeah. and you go a bit deeper and you get a bit of coaching to help you bring out the gold, really, don't you? Because I you never you never know what's good until yeah. you say it, really, do you? That's and some people think it's the big moments. If I think about big moments, my first big speaking experience at the Barbican, and that, you know, I, it, it was an amazing experience. I, I, I came out of that. I'd, I'd learned really how to be a speaker. I'd taken three or four hours of training material compacted into 30 minutes. It had to be exactly 30 minutes. But I, it was very interactive. I'd had fake £10 notes printed out, which I threw around the audience. I used a bit of Pink Floyd music, probably illegally. <laughs> At the time, it wasn't recorded. I mean, it actually was recorded. They probably shouldn't have. But, yeah, that whole event, I remember telling somebody, I've just done this speech, and it went well. And I said, oh, and is it in theater, involved in the theatre? So I gave him a tape, and a couple of weeks later, I said, do you get to look at it? He said, oh, no, I'll have a look at it tonight. following day, I saw him. He says, that wasn't a speech. I said, what do you mean? He said, that was a full-blown theatrical production. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, I just got people involved. I had people sitting up, standing up. It was really interactive. But yeah. it had taken me I, – I, I worked it out. At, once I'd written the speech, it took me 150 hours of rehearsal time to wow. get it right. Wowee, 150 hours of rehearsal. Yeah, just to clarify, I'm not a rehearser. I run over certain things and practice little bits, but I'm I'm someone who's really good in the moment. So that's a very different style maybe than what I would have. I, so I, today it, I wouldn't do that because I have, I've done written speeches, but this is the problem. Yeah. They wanted the script. So, so that was more of a script. So you were delivering a script really more there. When it was delivered, it didn't sound like a script. The whole... And I think, well, we'll talk about this because this is one of the things that people often do is they write a script. If you write a script, you've got to write it in spoken English, not written English. Yeah, two things are different, yeah. yeah. Very, very different. You know, sentences break off in the middle of nowhere. Um, you start <laughs> yeah. sentences with but and because, all those things. 
And you've got to think about timing. You've got to actually speak it and mm. hear it as you're speaking it. And if it's not sounding right, just rewrite it so that it, it really does sound like you're just saying it off the cuff and then just work it and work it and work it. Now, I mean, I probably wasn't 100% to the script when I wrote it, but I knew exactly what I was doing. There were, this is in the days before PowerPoint, we had 35 millimeter slides then. So I was using 35 millimeter slides to show things, but it worked extremely well. People were still using the video of that 10 years later to train their salespeople. My talk was why you should buy life insurance. My audience were life insurance salesmen, mostly salesmen and saleswomen. So it was... I see, right. So you were literally preaching to the choir at that point. Exactly. And if you're <coughs> preaching to the choir, you have to be a bit different. And it, it, yeah. I was the opening speaker for the whole convention, and it was it. It yeah. set my speaking career off. And it was all based, not stories about me at that time. I was I knew stories were important. Mm. But they were interesting. Stories so, I created. So if you listen to this podcast, then here's a little challenge from Ricky and myself. Spend some time, maybe just pause the podcast now, get yourself a big piece of paper and do a little timeline of your life and think and write down those key moments. Maybe there's four or five key moments, you know, when you met somebody, when something happened, a change in, because those can then become the sort of, those are the seeds for the stories that grow out of them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good exercise to do. So there you go. There's a little challenge. Let me just break that because I'm interested in what you're saying, Ricky, but I also want to sort of go a bit deeper so you mentioned about doing this talk and stuff, but actually what you also said was you were using props. So how often do you use props as an example? Oh, I love props. I know. I, I've seen you with your prop box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have used a lot of props. I think it depends upon on the talk. I use slides. I sometimes do speeches without slides. I use poetry a lot. I, I use anything I can which helps to make the presentation as entertaining as possible. And the props, that the £10 notes worked brilliantly. At that particular time, I was just saying, you know, I, I can't remember the, the exact speech now, but it was really just, it was illustrating the, the difference between a good retirement and a bad retirement is money. I'm just throw away the £10 notes all over the place. And yeah. it just sort of, well, with, while Pink Floyd is playing money in the background. So it was just, it was just a sort of, yeah. you know, I could have just said, well, money makes a difference, but spending two minutes playing with money made the whole thing make much more sense. Yeah. Um, Just to clarify, if you if you do replicate money, you may go to prison. So maybe use some Monopoly money in future. That might be good. I was very uh, careful. We'd actually checked up on this one, and I had uh, a banner across the front of it saying that this was not – it was very twice good. the size of a normal £10 note. That's so good. It, had to be. it said, from the bank of Ricky Arundel, that's, that's what you need. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, but but there's something about the props that isn't right because you can you can mention money, but then you've got the audio of the money 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 song in the background, and you've got the props. That, so therefore, it becomes an experience for the audience, yes. and they then it drills into their head. They remember it more. Absolutely, because you're the person who was throwing out the money while Pink Floyd was playing. So that's the that's the entertainment part, right? Two or three years later, they said, oh, somebody said to me, you spoke at the life insurance convention. Weren't you the guy throwing out the £10 notes? <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> so I became, you know, it was so memorable because once they've got that, from that one memory, all the other things that I started to say and did start to come back again. Because you know what it's like when you, you're trying to recall something, you get one memory and from that, 
other things then start to link because they're all connected in our heads. Yeah. So what you're trying to do is create in the audience these <laughs> links that they remember that the moment they think about them starts to draw in everything else that they're talking about. Brilliant. I was watching somebody talk the other day, um, and um, I'm going to be awful now and I've forgotten her her name. Um, Otter is her um Charlie Wyman. Charlie Wyman. Sorry, Charlie. The yeah. name is completely gone. I should yeah. remember it because I, I keep thinking Charlie Wyman. Is that any relation to Bill? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's a great speaker. I enjoyed Charlie. She's good. But what she did that was so impressive is she played with this otter to get us to connect with her acronym. And then she started to talk about the habits of the otter, which actually started to link to the meanings that she was going to connect in the acronym to the otter. So by the time she finished, you've got, Everything to do with her acronym was all coming together and the story was making sense. And I thought, whoa, that is so clever. The acronym, obviously, if, you, if your acronym is Otter, that's what she talks about. Then she obviously has an Otter. That would make sense. And she has also on Zoom, she has the lettering behind her. Yeah. I guess if she's on a stage, she'd have the lettering behind her. So it, all of those are, it's interesting. So you, 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 remember, you remembered Otter before her name. Therefore, it worked, right? So the acronym, I mean, acronyms can be terrible, can't they? There's yeah. nothing worse than a forced acronym, is the Ricky? But but in that way, you know, it sticks. There's the otter otter, the like, you know, the cuddly toy otter. Then there's the wording, the lettering, and then there's her speech as well. And that all brings together. So it's about creating those little memories or it's getting the synapses in the brain firing, isn't it? That's what we want. Working, yeah. But it's also entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. It was good entertainment. I really enjoyed that. So, it's, you know, and I always like one of the most powerful speeches I ever saw. We do, you were talking about speaking to a blind, another NSA convention. They, every year I'd been, they'd had this guy called Ken Medema. And his what he used to do was they paid him to come along and he'd sit, a blind pianist, would listen to the speeches and then he'd go up on stage to his piano and he would play a song he'd written in his head while he was listening to the speech that encapsulated what the speaker was talking about. Wow, absolutely brilliant! So, so yeah, no words, just a piano piece. Just the piano, and he and but he was able to listen and and pull this yeah. together. Amazing. So we come to one year. I went back there, and, they, and I heard on the grapevine that they cancelled him because the new president said, "Look, we've been doing this every year. I want something different." Yeah, and they said, "Well, we've already booked him." I said, "Well, okay." get him to do a keynote speech. So they went back to Ken. They said, we, we don't want you to do that. We want you to do a keynote speech this year. He said, I'm not a speaker. I've never done a keynote speech. I said, don't worry. We have some really good coaches. And so they coached him. And it was very simple. The speech was entitled, The Magic Begins When the Speaker Listens. Now, this is a classic example of getting the message in the title of your speech. Because now yeah. that was it. The whole speech was all about that. The magic begins when the speaker listens. He split it into three parts. The first part, he talked about his life growing up as a blind boy and how life is so different when you can only see it through your ears, through what you hear. Yeah. Then he got a few people up on stage and did a little bit of interaction, demonstrating how to improve your hearing and how to improve how you listen to what you're hearing. And then he got a few people to say, who is the most significant person in your life and why? And he then made up a song there and then about those people. Yeah just from what you listen. And I sat back and I thought, my God, that was absolutely amazing. 
He played with stories, his own stories, stories from the audience, made them up as he was going along, put music to them, created an entire entertainment show that made, I mean, okay, this was 15 years ago, so unforgettable I can remember it as if I'm sitting there watching it now. Wow. And that's to me, is where all of what we've been talking about today is there. It's about show business. It's about stories. It's about entertaining an audience so they just don't forget what you had to say. Wow, fantastic stuff. Time is ticking on, Ricky. I guess we need to draw this to a close, but thank you so much for all the tips. Just maybe give it, have you got a little extra tip you might want to tell people storytelling? Is there some little little jewel that you can give away just as we start to wrap up? I had to ask the question. Question. Why was I good at storytelling? I, I hadn't realized until somebody asked me to do some work a few years ago on storytelling. I thought, oh, it's not something I talk about. And then I realized the reason they'd asked me was because I always tell stories. Right. Yes. So I thought, well, why? I've never studied storytelling, never learned storytelling. And then I suddenly realized my dad was a storyteller. <laughs> my dad had a story about how he personally was responsible for the sinking of the Bismarck. <laughs> okay. Uh, wow. And it's a brilliant story, all about the way in which, you know, the lead plane wasn't going to be able to take off. He was an aircraft engineer. He was responsible for the airplanes. And he convinced the pilot, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Just go. And if they'd had to pull <laughs> the planes back, they would have missed the Bismarck because it was too fast. So it was a, it was an interesting story. But then he had stories about, you know, his mm. life as a Freemason and his friendship with King Gustav of Sweden and all of these things, which were probably massively exaggerated. But I grew up with those stories around me all the time. Mm. And I think if you look around you, if you look at your family, your kids, and everywhere I look, everything I do, every day something happens that's a story I can use. You can let them just go past you and disappear, and you they will be forgotten. Or you can <laughs> see the story and think, I can use that. Write it down. Yeah, write it down. You'd be Stories. amazed. I was, I was working with some people yesterday, and I was just telling them they're in the NHS, and I was just saying, you have stories every single day, stories of life and death. Write them down, please, and start telling them in an anonymized way because you, you can't give away certain information, but start to write them down. Yeah, fantastic, Ricky. How can people get hold of you? What's your uh, website best address? Best place is LinkedIn. Oh, I LinkedIn, am yeah. the only Ricky Arundel in the world. Wow. And it's R-I-K-K-I, isn't it? Just so you know. A-R-U-N-D-E-L, as in the castle. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Ricky. You're a legend setting up the Professional Speaking Association. You've been around for a long time. I love learning from you. Thank you for sharing your life and sharing your stories today. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for listening to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with your host, Lee Jackson. If you'd like to know more about Lee's work as a motivational keynote speaker and presentation coach, visit his website at leejackson.biz. That's leejackson.biz.